But good to see you. We're in our series on Genesis, and we're talking about the life of Jacob. I have two more messages, and then we're going to take a break, and we're going to go into an Easter resurrection series. But next week, we're going to talk about how God unites a divided family. Two brothers were separated from each other for 20 years, and the last one uh, told the former one, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. So what does God do over 20 years? How does he handle that? Do you have strange relationships that you can't fix? Well, next week we're going to learn some principles that God uses to mend relationships. And then the week following that is the hardest message I'm going to preach out of the whole series. It's going to be on dealing with abuse in your family. Something startling to me was one out of three women are abused in some way. And also about one out of every five boys under the age of 13 are abused. What happens when that hits your family? How do you handle that? How do you deal with it? What do you do for your child? What about the abuser? So that one's going to be a little bit of a hard message. But I'm going to to deal with it, okay? Because God puts it in his word. And I think that his people need to know what we should do with that. So that'll be two weeks from now, so I'm just telling you so you can prepare yourself, okay? But today we're going to deal with another issue, and that is, what does God do when you're in a really, really hard place? How does he help you? Do you know that sometimes God cripples you to help you? Some of you have wondered why I've been hobbling around, so I'll go ahead and tell you. I, I lived my message this week. Uh, I was getting out of my tractor on Thursday evening and stepped out of the top step with a pair of muck boots on, and I went to go to the second step, and you all know what happens when you get in a cow field, right? The bottom of your boot gets a little slick. Well, I missed the second step, about a foot and a half off the ground, and I'm a little over 200 pounds, and I'd already committed to going down, and so I went down, and my foot creeled sideways and popped, and yes, I thought it broke my leg. So uh, I hobbled back up in the tractor, and that's why I'm hobbling around this morning. So if you have a really fast sermon, you'll know why, okay? But nevertheless, that's how it goes. But God cripples us sometimes and puts us on the sideline to let us stop and think about our life. And that's what we're going to see this morning about how God uses pain to help solve his problem. And I appreciate Greg and Sharon singing that last song, even when I don't see it, you're working. And even when I don't feel it, you're working because God never stops. He never stops working. And that's the perfect song to lead into our message today. Now, if you look at the map, Jacob left Haran, which is a long way. Last week, we saw where his father-in-law chased him all the way down, right near that little space there where you see Shechem. It's right above it. He chased him all the way down there, hundreds of miles on horseback with all of these flocks. And Jacob gets down to that point, and now he's between his father-in-law Laban, who said, don't cross this pile or I'll kill you. And he's right next to his brother Esau, who said, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. Boy, he's in between two deaths, isn't he? What's he going to do? Well, that's what we're going to study this morning. So I'm going to read the first six verses of Genesis 32. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can look on the screen. But here's what the text says. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. 
So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there's 400 men with him. Now if the last time you hoodooed your brother, and 20 years after that, you sent someone a hundred miles or so to go tell him that you were going to come back in town and you wanted him to know first. And they responded back to you and said, oh, we told him, and he's bringing 400 men with him. Now, what would you think? Would you think he was coming to welcome you into his land? Well, what did Jacob do when he heard that Esau had 400 men coming to meet him? I'm going to give you a hint. Now it starts with the P. What did he do? What? He panicked. Somebody said it. He panicked. Look in chapter 32, verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. The idea here is he had an absolute panic attack. By the way, what do we do when we first hear of news that startles us? What's your first reaction? Do you stop and say, oh, Lord, I'm going to pray now? No, usually the first thing we do is go, <gasps> do you know what happened to me? I mean, this is our human nature, isn't it? We, we automatically go into panic mode, and this is exactly what Jacob does. He is so distressed, and notice the text, greatly afraid. You know, there's a difference between having some fear and being greatly afraid. When you're greatly afraid, you usually do things that are not normal. And this is exactly what happened to him. So what do you think he did after he had his panic attack? And by the way, that starts with a P. What did he do? He what? He planned. Myra, did you read my PowerPoint? Uh, he, <laughs> he actually plotted is what he did. But planned, I'll take that one too. He, he plotted. Notice chapter 32, verse 8. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps. By the way, there's actually a play on words here where Jacob names this Mahanaim. That means two camps. So what does he do? He takes that as a sign and says, well, I'm going to divide my family into two camps. Uh, thinking that if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now to show you that Jacob has not changed his favoritism, who does he put out front? Yeah, he, he puts uh, Leah out front and keeps Rachel in the back. Now later on, <clears throat> Leah's going to move up a couple of notches because he's going to put the two maidservants out front, then Leah and then Rachel. But nevertheless, he's, he's planning here. He's plotting to do what he thinks he can in his own power. So after he plans and after he plots, what do you think he does? Starts with a P, by the way. What do you think he does? Go ahead, quit being shy. He prays. Finally. Now, we've known Jacob all the way, several chapters back. Do you realize this is the first recorded prayer that Jacob is said to mention? The first time he's said to pray. And it's perhaps one of his greatest prayers. Notice what he says. Uh, chapter 32, verses 9 through 12. And Jacob said, O God, my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, 
who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, and I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. So I am unworthy. Now, notice what he says. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. I fear that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Now notice what he says. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Now, after Jacob plans and plots and prays, what do you think he did? Hey, you, you are reading my PowerPoint. <laughs> Leave it to your own sneaky children. He paid dearly. Now, I want you to know, Jacob is going to send to Esau 500 animals. Now, let me tell you something. That is a lot of animals. That's a lot of animals today. God really blessed him over in the land of his father-in-law. But now Jacob is going to, after he prays, he's just, he can't help himself. He's going to have to try to do something. And so he figures that he's going to do this. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves... When you multiply the amount of calves there, you come up with a huge number. One scholar said possibly over 500. 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Now that's what you'd call a bribe. I mean, and so now what does Jacob do? He's not just going to send them all in one big herd. He's going to break them up into four different groups and one big herd's going to meet Esau, and he's going to go, what is this big mess? And then after that herd gets by, he's going to go a little piece, and here comes another big herd. Then a little piece, and then another big herd. You all get the point. Four times. What are you going to do with all these animals out in the middle of the desert? Well, notice what Jacob said. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do these belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, notice the words, they belong to your servant, Jacob. Now, what did Jacob want to be over Esau? He wanted to be his lord. He stole the family blessing, but now how is he addressing himself? With great humility, your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he's behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, notice this, he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So now here's Jacob. 
He has sent these four droves ahead of himself to meet his brother Esau. And now he's all by himself, and he's getting ready. He knows this is going to be the biggest thing that he faces in his life. So he sets his two wives and their family and the servants ahead of him, and now he stays. And now he's getting ready to go off by himself to prepare to meet his brother Esau. So what does God do when Jacob is in this crisis point in his life? You ready? He cripples him. He cripples him. This is what the wrestling of the angel is all about. I've heard people say, you know, I've heard people preach Genesis 32 about Jacob wrestling with the angel and say, this is fervent prayer on the Christian's part. No, it's not. This is where God meets this man who's a trickster and a rascal and God renames him and says, Jacob, you've spent your whole life fighting with men and fighting against God. And guess what? I'm going to break you to the point where you have nowhere to go. You're going to have to completely depend upon me or else. And this is exactly what happens. Now, notice the passage here. Genesis 32, verse 22. The same night he arose took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford. Now, I can't pass up this, because I have to do it. I'm your pastor, and I have to give you good instruction. So whenever ford is mentioned in Scripture, we have to address that. Did you know that 85% of fords are still on the road today? (laughs) The other 15% made it home. Do you know why so many Hot Wheels are based after Ford models? So kids get used to pushing them at a young age. (laughs) What do you get when you crash a Ford Focus into a Ford Fiesta? A Ford Fusion. (laughs) And you know what I like about Ford? They circle the problem for you. And then finally the last one, what do you call a Ford on top of a hill? Jameson, what do you call it? A miracle. Anyway, no, the Ford in this passage is not talking about the automobile. It's talking about a shallow place in the creek. So here Jacob takes his wives and his family, he crosses this shallow place in the creek, uh, and then he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. So Jacob was left alone on the backside. Boy, there's Brian. I'm glad he missed all that. And a man wrestled with him until the break of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Trickster, Supplanter, Schemer. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Trickster, Supplanter, Schemer. It shall be called Prince of God. Now, can you imagine how humbling this would be? Here's Jacob, and by the way, you have to put yourself in his place. Have you all ever been out in the nighttime when there's no city lights or town lights or street lights and you're out all by yourself? Y'all like to camp? Anybody like to go out and camp? And you're out there all by yourself in the pitch dark and you hear the rustling of the leaves. What happens to you when that, when that takes place? You know, when I was a kid, we went camping one time and I remember a certain member of my family coming up and sneaking up in the middle of the night 
and just scared the daylights out of us. You're talking about getting wild. You know, I mean, you get in, they call it fight or flight mode. If something would grab a hold of you, it would be dangerous. But nevertheless, this is what happened to Jacob. He gets out in the middle of the night in the pitch dark, and all of a sudden a man comes over and grabs him by the back of the coat. Can you imagine? And starts trying to pin him down on the ground. And Jacob's in this wrestling match. He doesn't know if it's Esau. I'm sure that's who he thought it was. My guess is he thought Esau had snuck up on him and grabbed him and was getting ready to kill him. And he starts wrestling with him and they wrestle and wrestle all night long until Jacob is so wore out he can't move. And he wasn't about to quit. And this man, who later we're going to see is God himself, finally reaches down and touches Jacob one time and pulls his hip out of socket. Now, anybody's had a hip replacement knows exactly what that feels like. That's not very comfortable and it surely does limit your mobility. So the question here is not whether Jacob actually defeated this man. That's ridiculous. Please don't ever say that. The point is Jacob wouldn't let go of him. The man could have whipped him a hundred times, but Jacob just kept grabbing a hold of him. And so here the man says, you will no longer be called the grabber, the supplanter, but you will be called the prince of God. Notice what he says, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. Penei, face, El, God. The face of God. For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose, up, rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thighs. Crippling grace. Can I pray before we go any further? Father, thank you this morning that you do things unlike we wish you would do them sometimes. Sometimes when we want you to swoop down in the midst of all of our problems and just take them away, you don't do it like that. And we don't know what to think about you when you don't deliver your people like you say you will. You promise us that ultimately you'll deliver us, but when the plans don't work out as we have you in our mind, we become discouraged with you or disappointed in you, or we question you. We wonder if you're even there. And then, Father, when you do something totally opposite of what we expect, we don't know what to do with it. So I pray this morning, in the next few moments, as we consider this passage, that we will evaluate our life and our need for you, and then how oftentimes you answer our prayers in the exact opposite of what we ask for. And when you do that, do we actually see you working in our life the way you truly are? That even when we don't feel that you're working, you never stop. And even when we don't see that you're working, you never stop. Because that's the kind of God that you are. So help us to learn this morning from this story 
how you touch our life and how you want to change us to be more like your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I want to share four lessons with you from this story that I think will help us when we face difficult circumstances in life. Lesson number one is this. Prayer should be their first action that we take, not our last resort. Prayer should be our first action, not our last resort. What is it that we, as humans, do on a consistent basis over and over when something bad happens? We do everything we can in our human strength, and then we give this line, don't we? Well, I'll, I'll pray. I can't do anything else. I'll pray. Do you know that's the opposite of how God actually works? What God wants us to do is actually pray first. Because when we pray, and when we take our needs to God, when we ask Him to intervene on our behalf, we are, we are actually opening up the gates of heaven to do ten times, thousands and thousands of times greater than what you and I could do. One simple prayer from God's child to his father, can accomplish millions times more what you and I can do in our own strength. This is a hard lesson to learn in life because people tell us all the time, do, what you, do your part, you have to do your part. And that is true to a certain extent. But there comes a place in time in our life when you are helpless and you can't do anything. Do you know why God puts us in those positions? Do you know why God lets us encounter people that you can't change? Do you know why he lets us encounter situations that you and I have absolutely no oversight over or no control over what happens? The reason he does that is to teach us exactly how dependent we really are. And I want you to know something, folks. We are needy, needy people. As I failed this week, here's what I began to think. And by the way, when you get over 50, you really start thinking about dumb things that you do. One time I was on a ladder, not long ago, putting a street light that I thought was so important at the very tip top of our garage so it would shine out. And I, I wanted to put two pieces of t-shirt over the edge of the ladder so that when I got up on the roof, it didn't scratch the siding up there because I was afraid my wife would want me to change it. So I run the ladder all the way to the top and I leave about three rungs and I start climbing up that ladder and you know, when I'm going up and I feel it giving a little bit and I'm thinking, this is probably not the wisest thing to do. Nevertheless, I, you know, I, I can do this. So I get to the top of the ladder and I go to drill the holes in there and I'm trying to hold a drill in my back pocket and screws in my mouth and a light under my arm. And I'm sitting up there and the whole time I'm doing this, I'm thinking, this is the dumbest thing I have done in years. So I have to get a wire and while I'm at the tip top of this ladder, I'm holding a drill and I decide to put it between my legs and I reach over to get something as I do the ladder starts sliding on those t-shirts on that siding. Now, I didn't want to drop my DeWalt drill, but you know, you start thinking at this time, drill or die, one of the two, <laughs> something's going to have to give. And I, I took my hand and caught myself as the ladder started sliding. Now my grandfather did this. 
in his 70s, you know where we get this from, right? Fell off the side of his house and hit a gutter downspout, a concrete gutter downspout right on the top of his shoulder and just shattered the whole top of his shoulder and his neck. And I can remember as a kid fussing at him going, you know better than that. You know to, to tell us if you need something like that. And when you get older, you know, there's only so much dependence that you really want. You don't really want people helping you and telling you what to do because it makes you feel useless. And in, our, in, in your mind, you're still 20, but in your body, you're in your 70s. And you think to yourself, leave me alone. I used to change your diapers. I know exactly what I'm going to do. And we get stubborn. Well, you know, when you're like that, God gives you times of reflection. When you really begin understanding how frail and how fragile life really is. I've told you this story before, but a man who owned a multi-million dollar concrete business, I used to drive a truck for him when I was in my 20s. He retired at age 50, maybe, maybe earlier, as a multi-millionaire. Stick built his own home, lived right beside my grandfather. Lived till he was up in his 70s. Laughed at me when I told him I was going into ministry. Laughed at me, told me what a fool I was. And anyway, he was a very wealthy, wealthy man. I didn't know enough about him to realize that he came from a family of preachers. So he was in some way a preacher's kid. Grew up in a preacher's home. Don't know what he saw, but anyway, he was bitter toward ministry and God. This man could have paid someone $100 to climb up and trim a limb out of a tree, but he decided he would do it himself one day. And he was outside on a ladder, climbed up a limb, and cut about five foot off the end of an oak tree limb, and it swung underneath and hit his ladder, knocked his ladder out from under him. There was only one rock in his yard. One rock. And he fell right on that rock, and it hit him right in the top of the head. He was incapacitated, lost his total function, and he was an invalid for at least 15 years of his life. Karen and I went to visit him. But while I was there, I hadn't seen him in years, I, I wanted to stop by the nursing home one day and go see him. I walked in the door thinking that he would never know me. He, couldn't, he could barely speak. He could only talk out of a corner of his mouth. And when he did, he would drool. Now, this was the total opposite of this man of health and perfection and everything else. But when I came in, he began to bawl and cry and just saliva was coming out of, his, out of his mouth where he was trying to talk to me. And he began to hug me and thank me, wanted me to pray for him. And I thought to myself, what in the world has happened to this man? Something has changed because a fall off a ladder doesn't change a hard heart. But I'll tell you what did. Prayer. His family and some other people later told me that when Mr. Roy fell, they began to pray for him. And he was still fully cognizant in his mind, but his body function couldn't change. And the fall from the ladder began to make him hard, but his family started praying for him. And you know what happened? His heart softened, his heart changed, and the next thing you knew, we, had, we found out that he was actually a believer in Jesus Christ years before. But because of the pain in his life and the trouble he faced and all the issues he went through, he turned hard toward God and everybody that was with God, and he wanted nothing to do with them. 
But God transformed his life through prayer. And if you take anything away from this, this is what I would want you to take away. God changes things through prayer. And that is the lesson that we have to learn. It is the first thing we should do, not the last. A second lesson is this. Difficult circumstances, sickness, and troubles are intended to drive us toward God, not away from Him. They're intended to drive us to God, not away. In just a few chapters over, we're going to run into a man named Joseph. He's one of Jacob's children. And Jacob doesn't stop showing favoritism, by the way, just because he's renamed. He picks out favorites with Joseph and gives him this pretty coat and sends him out among his jealous brothers. And what do they do to him? They throw him in a pit, decide to kill him, and then change their mind and say, no, we'll sell him. They sold Joseph into slavery. He goes to Egypt. While he's there, he's lied about. He's chased by Potiphar's wife. All kinds of things happen, and he always makes a decision to do what's right. And you know what happens to this man who's always living for God? Guess what happens to him? The worst. He decides not to sleep with Potiphar's wife. He ends up in jail. While he's in jail, he does a favor to a baker and a chef, and they get up and forget about him. And the next thing you know, here's Jacob or Joseph totally left to his own. There in the dungeon. And finally, when Jacob is elevated as number two in Egypt, he looks back on his life, all the problems, all the pain, all the suffering, all he went through, and this is what he says. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God had a plan and a purpose in my pain and my suffering and my relationships that failed. God had a purpose in that. I could not see that. But looking back on it now, I do. But the most honoring thing out of it all is that Joseph decided to trust God even in the midst of his pain. And can I share something with you this morning? If you know Christ Jesus as your Savior, and you have problems and pain and struggles in your life, and you can't finger point what the issue is, let me assure you of something. God has a purpose for your pain. You need to get on your face and on your knees and in His Word and seek what God is teaching you through your pain and your problems. He will do that. God never allows pain and problems into your life to push you away from Him. He does it to drive you near Him. It's like a drawing magnet. When we go through pain and struggle, instead of putting up a stiff arm, what God wants us to do is put out our hands and approach Him to draw near to Him and depend upon Him. And if we'll do that, He is near to the brokenhearted. His Word says that. He's near to the brokenhearted. Well, there's a third lesson that I think we learn, and that is this. God sometimes must cripple us so that we will be totally dependent upon Him. You know, when somebody tells me, oh, such and such is so strong. They could never be broke. Let me say something to you. You have never known the God of this Bible. I assure you, there is no human flesh that God cannot break if He decides to break them. 
So you have too high of a view of man and his hardness and too low of a view of God and his grace. But God can do some incredible things to break people. And as a matter of fact, there was a man who was an absolute tyrant. Have you all ever met a tyrant? This man was so vicious, I've read about him many, many times, that when he heard that Christians were gathering together, he would plot himself together and go to the officials of the town, and he would tell them, these, these Christians are meeting in this certain church. And I want you to grant me permission to go there and drag them out, pull them out in front of all their family and friends, and get a group of people together and just stone them to death. Have you all ever seen a stoning? If you go back in the Old Testament, you read about it, you had to have two or three witnesses to accuse someone because the word of one person wasn't enough. They would stand forth and they would accuse the person, and the person would be drug out, and they would either be put down on their hands and their knees, or they would be put down face down, and the person who accused them would stand over them with a big flat rock and take it usually up on their head and throw the rock down on their head. Then the second person would throw a rock, and then the third, if there was a third witness, and then all of the people who witnessed it would grab a stone and they would pile it on top of the body. And this is how a stoning would take place. By the way, the first Christian who died that we know of in Acts chapter 7 was a man named Stephen. And as Stephen was being stoned to death on the ground, he looked up into heaven, it's the only time after Jesus' resurrection, that the Bible says that Jesus was saw standing. And Stephen yells out, what does he yell? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But all the people who threw the stones and the rocks at Stephen took their coats off so they could really get a good throw. And you know where they laid them? Right at the feet of a man named Saul otherwise known as Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle, who was a great man, tells a story in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which is simply this, that he was given a thorn in his flesh to cripple him so that he would not boast about things that he knew and saw. Now, if we stop and think about that for a moment, that doesn't sound like how God would do things, does it? You would think that if God gave you incredible talent or incredible knowledge or incredible skills, that God would want you to have the looks. He would want you to have the oratory skill and the ability to do something. But do you know what happened? God crippled the Apostle Paul and caused him to suffer to teach Paul a valuable, valuable lesson. You want to know what the lesson is? It's lesson number four. God's greatest miracle is not healing. I think I can back that up in Scripture. God's greatest miracle is not physical healing. It is actually grace to get you through the struggle. If you read Paul's letters, and I, I think I'm going to preach a series on this sometime in the next 10 years. It's in my plans. To trace the Apostle Paul's use of the word suffering and grace. 
And I think what you'll discover when you trace that idea and that concept is this. Paul realized that every time he went into a town and suffered, he was fulfilling the will of Jesus. And every time he did, he asked for more. You know why? Because every time he suffered, Jesus gave him more grace to deal with his problem. Paul actually says in one place that instead of this suffering is given to me, this is what he says, this grace is given to me. He replaces the word suffering with grace. Notice his words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and notice them carefully. And by the way, you have to read the whole passage to get the context, but the Corinthians were boasting about everybody that they were following now. They had all of these super preachers that were telling them all about these miracles and all these things that they had seen and heard. And Paul says, I know a man. Whether he was in the body or out, I can't tell you. But I know this man was caught up in the third heaven. And he was given revelation of truth that he was not allowed to speak about. You see, Scripture doesn't record everything that the apostles knew. Only what they were allowed to write. But Paul writes this, so to keep me, interesting isn't it, this man and me are now linked together, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in my flesh. Now Paul doesn't say what the thorn was. Some people say it was hunchback, some people say it was an eye problem, other people say it was a no- it doesn't matter. It was a thorn. A thorn was given to me in the flesh and it was a direct messenger of Satan, notice this, to harass him. In my opinion, the thorn in the flesh is, I won't even tell you, but I will say this, Paul was open to spiritual warfare so that wherever he went, persecution came. And he says here that a messenger of Satan was sent to harass him to keep him from becoming, what? Conceited. What, what does that mean? High-minded, arrogant, haughty, a know-it-all, boastful, proud. So what did God do to keep Paul humble and in check? You ready? He made him sick. He made him weak. He made him dependent. And every time Paul thought about exercising his greatness, his suffering would come. And so Paul got tired of this just like you and I would. Oh God, I'm your servant. I'm going around planting churches. I've seen Jesus. I'm doing this. and Lord, I'm serving you. Take this away. This is so annoying. If you'd take it away, I could do so much more. Oh God, take this away. This is hindering me. I mean, Paul goes on. Notice what he says. Three times, I begged with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect, let me translate here, in your weakness. You see, Paul, if, if I don't cripple you, you don't depend upon me. And if you don't depend upon me, then my power can't work in you. 
And you know what that means? Nothing. You will do nothing. Because Paul, I know you. And I know what it takes for me to work through you. And so, Paul, this is why I gave that to you. What is Paul's conclusion? His conclusion is this. If that's how God wants to work in my life, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Notice he didn't just say weakness. What did he say? My weaknesses. He had several, just like you and I do. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now if I were teaching you a good theological lesson here, you know what it would be? That God's power is greater in your weakness than it is in your strength. And this is how he works. He cripples his people sometimes so that we're dependent upon him. And then he gives us something better than healing. You know what it is? He gives us grace. What is grace? Grace in this situation is God's power to work through the issue and to do God's will. Grace. Therefore, I will, not, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then. Listen to this. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I am content with that. By the way, in the book of Philippians where the Apostle Paul writes, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The word do there is the Greek word iskus. It actually means to accept or to welcome. I can accept all things through Christ who gives me strength. Here's a parallel passage. I can accept what? Paul goes on to say this in Philippians, whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm full, whether I'm persecuted or whether I'm not. I have learned to accept. Why does he do that? For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Now can I say this with all my honesty? This is much easier to preach than it is to live. But I can say this with equal authority. God is as faithful to you as he is to Paul. And if we will depend upon him for strength, God will give us grace to deal with our problem head on. But we have to ask him. Are you willing to ask him this morning? Or do we keep on fighting it on our own? You know, God will get us to a place where he pins us. Just like he did Jacob. He'll pin us. And then we'll have to cry. Are you willing to do it now? Or does he have to get us all the way down to the mat? Father, thank you so much this morning for your truth. And thank you for the lessons that we learn about your grace. And sometimes when we, we don't understand how you work and how you operate then we see Scripture that shows us this is love. 
This is the love of a father for his child. And your crippling grace in the life of Jacob and the life of Paul in our life is given to us to teach us who you are and how you want to work in our life. So this morning, Father, I want to take a moment and pray for the heart of every person here, both in person, online, those who watch this later in the week, those who face difficulties and problems and we don't know what to do, we don't know why they came, we can't explain them. I pray that we would learn to depend upon you. First of all, to pray. To pray, first and foremost, for your understanding and wisdom and how to live through circumstances in our life. And I pray, Father, that if things don't go the way that we pray for, that we'll see that you're still working. But perhaps it's in a different way than we prayed. And that you always know best. And so I pray that you'll give us patience, understanding, and then a willingness to submit to you, to depend upon you, to be our deliverer, to be our shield, to be our rock, and to be our fortress. And as we will see next week, to be the one who fights our battles. And you've never stopped doing that. And we thank you for it. So work in our life and help us, Father, to submit to you this morning all of our pains and all of our problems that we can't fix and entrust them to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you came here this morning or you're watching this online, I just want to share this with you from my heart. The greatest battle that you and I ever face is our battle of sin. All of us are made in God's image. Every one of us, every human being is made in God's image. And because we are, we have been affected, impacted directly by the sin that happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God told them, the day you eat, you shall surely die. And do you know what happened the day Adam and Eve ate and they disobeyed God? In their spirit, they spiritually died from God. Now physically they kept on living for a while, but spiritually they were dead. What had to happen? That was a great gulf. That was a separation that occurred that no man could bridge. There's nothing Adam could do. He tried to get leaves. He tried to cover himself. He tried to do anything he could. But God had to intervene. What did God do? God went and he slayed an animal. He took an innocent life for the guilty life and he took the skin and he covered the nakedness and the guilt of Adam and Eve. And you can trace that picture all the way through Scripture until you get all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ when the Lamb of God, intentional metaphor, who takes away not just the sin of Adam and Eve, but takes away the sin of the world. God the Father punished Christ the Son, who is God, very God, who became a man in our image, in our likeness, and took our place, and the full wrath of God was poured out upon him for the sin of man. And God gives us the message, and here's the message, that he loved you. 
And whoever will believe that the Son died in your place on the cross, whoever believes in Him, God will give eternal life to. But you have to, by faith, put your trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the payment for your sin. And if you're willing to do that, humble yourself. See that your righteousness before God is filthy rags but that God provided a way for you to be delivered from his wrath to our sin in the person of Jesus. If you'll by faith believe that message, the scripture says that you will have eternal life and will not come into condemnation. But you have to believe that for yourself. Your parents can't do it for you. Nobody can do this for you. It is something you have to do on your own. And if you'll do that this morning... Call out to him. He'll save you. And he wants to do that. So Father, anyone here this morning that doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray that your spirit would work in their heart and open them so that eventually they'll come to know you and believe on Jesus for eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.